do something that will either make the company successful or break it, as opposed to managing it to stay in business for another few years. And we, we did this for probably four or five years. And at the end of it, I exited without any financial losses. At the same time, I had invested something like 12 or 13 years of my life in this business. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete proven step-by-step -step online course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Roger Dooley. Roger, are you ready to rock? I am, Andrew. Let's do it. Well, let me tell the audience about you. Roger is an author and international keynote speaker. His books include Friction, The Untapped Force That Can Be Your Most Powerful Advantage, and Brain Influence, 100 Ways to Persuade and Convince Consumers with neuromarketing. He writes the popular blog, Neuromarketing, as well as a column at Forbes.com. He is the founder of Dooley Direct, a consultancy and co-founded College Confidential, the leading college-bound website. He's been a serial entrepreneur since he left a senior strategy position at Fortune 1000 Company to enter the then nascent home computer market. In addition, he's got a podcast, but I'll let you tell us about that. Roger, just take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Well, I think you've covered a lot of ground there. I live in Austin, Texas, which is a great high-tech town, and I enjoy recording a weekly podcast, and you can appreciate the effort that goes into that, Andrew, but it's Absolutely. all worth it because you talk to such interesting people. So the title of that one is The Brainfluence Podcast, and easy enough to find just by looking for a Roger Dooley podcast or something of that nature. Or going to the show notes, which we'll put it in there here. Definitely. Fantastic. And I just, for the audience out there who are listening, and there's some people that are listening thinking, I want to write a book. What advice would you give them? I get started and, you know, it can be kind of intimidating to sit down and write a book. And it was for me, particularly the first time around where you sort of sit there with a blank screen in front of you and say, okay, well, where do I begin? And there are all kinds of books and guides to writing a book, you know, start with an outline and so on. And that's great. If you, if you really know exactly what you want to write, then start with that outline and populate the chapters and so on and just grind away at it. But if you are stuck, I think one of the better things to do is just start writing anything, write blog posts, you know, write stuff on LinkedIn, anything that will get your sort of creative juices flowing. And it'll also, you'll start, you'll be developing your voice. And eventually, you'll be building a volume of content that could even be the basis for a book, at least to get going on it. And then certainly, there'll be a lot to fill in and edit and so on. But to me, that is the best way. My first book drew heavily on my many hundreds of blog posts at neuromarketing. And mm -hmm. I think without that background, it would have been much, a much more difficult book to write. That's great advice. Kind of get started and start writing rather than talking about writing. And for listeners out there, you can also follow Roger on LinkedIn where he does post articles that he's written. I noticed that you just put up something about friction related to the 
current political candidates. <laughs> yes, yes, in the U.S. And Correct. they are definitely different in terms of their proposed impact on business and regulation. And in general, first of all, there has to be regulation. There have to be taxes because you know both are important to have a, in a functioning society. But you have to be careful that you don't have so much regulation that it becomes difficult to do business. I talk about the nation of India, which particularly in the 90s and forward, grew at just a fraction, tiny fraction, as quickly as China did, in part because of their bureaucracy. And it was almost impossible for an entrepreneur to start a business there, where in other countries, it was so much simpler. So Indian entrepreneurs often either decided to work in the underground economy, where they would just not comply with regulations, but you can't really scale a large business that way. Or they would leave to go to a country that had a friendlier economic environment. And many, many did that. You know, today, India has been emphasizing economic development a little bit more and even has been boasting about the improvements in their ease of doing business rating. But to me, it is really all about friction and in most cases, minimizing that. Fantastic. And I, I just, I can't help but continue for just one last thing. I mean, normally we get straight into the question, but you've written such interesting topics and, you know, what you're talking about is so fascinating. Before we, we started recording this, you know, we talked about the idea that friction and, and in my case, I, I also see, you know, complexity and complexity is probably, you know, a sister of friction. Yes, but, indeed. And uh, simplicity is the opposite. So generally, as you simplify things, you are eliminating friction. And, you know, like I just would think for the average listener out there, they just might, may not really understand how much friction that either they are causing or they are participating in. And I'm just curious, you know, like, you know, how prevalent is fiction and how or friction and how much do you think it's really impacting people? Well, you know, I think it's everywhere and often we either don't see it or we take it for granted. In fact, I start off my book by promising that everyone will have a set of friction goggles by the end of it, meaning they'll be seeing friction where they didn't see it before. And I can give you one real world example. You know, for the last, I don't know, 50, 60, 80 years, we were taking taxis. And, you know, sure, maybe on a rainy afternoon in Manhattan, it was hard to find a taxi. But basically, we sort of accepted the process as the best available. We didn't think about it and all the friction inherent in it until Uber came along and showed us how easy and simple it could be, where we knew exactly when our ride was going to arrive. We knew exactly where we were on our trip. We didn't have to fumble for money at the end or credit cards or anything else. We could just walk out and say goodbye. You know, and they took all, almost all of the friction out of that process by just relentlessly focusing on everything that the consumer had to do and making it as easy as possible. And very few companies really have that orientation. Amazon is one that does. Jeff Bezos himself has said that when you reduce friction, when you make things easier, people do more of it. Hence, we have one-click ordering and a whole lot of other things that Amazon makes really easy. You know, mm. even if it hurts their business, they look out for the customer. So, you know, they have billions of dollars in returns, which are a huge problem for any company in the retail business. You know, often they're damaged, they're not saleable. I know Amazon sells warehouses full of stuff for pennies on the dollar just to get rid of it. And then other people go through that and then try and market the stuff. And, you know, they're taking a huge loss on this. But despite that, they make it super easy for the consumer to return stuff. They've even made it easier. First of all, their policies are very flexible in most cases. And now, even if you don't have the ability to package your box or you don't want to package your box, you can just take 
your little return form that you print out from their website into your local UPS store and they'll do it for you. They'll package it, they'll Mm. label it and put it on their way. Now, you know, most companies do not try and make returns easy because they are expensive for the company. They try and add friction to that process. You know, you've got a very narrow window, you've got procedures to go through and so on. They're hoping that you really don't bother to return it. Amazon, despite the cost of them, focuses on the customer and makes it easy. It's the words you just said focuses on the customer. It makes me think that, you know, eliminating friction in the case of Uber with taxis had to happen from outside of the system. The current taxi system at the time just wasn't able to do it. And um, it reminds me of when I was 25 years old, I, I found myself sitting in a, in a classroom, sitting in front of a man that later became a real role model. And, and he's an icon, Dr. W. Edwards Deming. And I was listening oh, yeah. to this, this man, and it's so, so impactful of what he talked about. And I went back and you know, studied with him again, and I even wrote a short book about his 14 points because it really impacted my life. But one thing he said is stop focusing on your competitor, start focusing on your customer. And if you continue to focus on your customer, you're gonna see their problems and their frictions and solve those problems, and you'll be far ahead of your competitors. And it's interesting that you said Exactly that. Focus on your customer. Well, that's, I think that Jeff Bezos probably could say the exact same words because in Amazon, if you are in a strategy meeting and bring up competitors, uh, you will be, <laughs> if not booted out of the meeting, at least be criticized or you know, told to change your focus because from their standpoint, competitors don't exist and even shareholders don't exist. They don't want to hear about maximizing shareholder value, they know that shareholders will be okay if they take care of the customer. So, you know, at other companies, you simply cannot imagine a meeting that didn't focus on, in part, uh, how is this going to increase shareholder value? And in equal part, what's the competition doing? And can we do it better than them? So it's a very different sort of approach, but winning companies do that. And Deming is still, I'm sure, revered in Japan as the person who revolutionized their auto industry and other industries. And part of his process was a, it morphed into a sort of friction elimination process with their Kaizen, that continuous improvement where you're just making tiny little changes to make things a little bit easier, often for the workers, instead of saying, well, the workers just have to do it this way. They would look and see, well, gee, the workers got to pick that up and move to this other spot. And they would make it uh, change the setup so that the worker didn't have to lift it or it was much closer. They didn't have to, uh, could just rotate a little bit and grab it. And by making the job easier, they were able to be far more productive. Yeah, it's amazing. And, uh, you know, Toyota first won the Deming Prize, the highest prize for quality in Japan. And you could probably say the world won it in the early 60s. And they just won the Deming Prize. One division of Toyota won it in uh, 2018. So they have a long history. They, they've of, of kept it. the message going, apparently. And that's, that's good to hear. Amazing. Well, now, I want to thank you for all of that discussion. I mean, you're bringing the audience a lot of value. And I think it's going to help people to understand what they can get by going to your podcast, by reading the books. Fantastic. But now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. 
Well, you know, I agonized a bit about this because I am uh, have been on the planet long enough to have made quite a few investments that didn't work out as expected. And so first I had to categorize, Andrew. I said, well, okay, to me, the worst investments are those that consume time, not money so much. I mean, even my investments that have occasionally gone south are not performed as expected. I was always relatively conservative. I've never, never put everything into one investment that wiped me out. So, you know, you can recover from those kinds of losses. And the ones that didn't work out were generally where I took somebody else's advice as opposed to really doing my own research and my own due diligence. But to me, those things that you invest time in, time you can never really get back. And at the same time, you know, I think that what I would characterize as maybe my worst investment was also my best investment in other ways. And because there are benefits from some activities, you drive sometimes non-monetary improvements or other, other aspects that are equally important. But anyway, I will get to the point here. Way back in the early days of home computers, I co-founded a business uh, that was uh, with a, another individual we were focused on the uh, getting software and accessories and other products to the early owners of home computers where the big box retail stores were blowing these things out, but they had neither the ability nor the knowledge to carry the hundreds of other things that people could buy for those computers. So we saw this, I bailed out of a really nice corporate job to do that. I was in charge of strategic planning for Fortune 1000 company. So that was probably one of the most emotional points in my life. I tend not to be super emotional business, but man, when I had to go in and tell the CEO that had hired me just a few years earlier that I was quitting, that was really stressful. And knowing too that I was leaving that corporate womb where, you know, I had insurance, I had salary and a retirement plan, all, all the good stuff that comes with that to go into this very new risky venture. But that worked actually quite well for years. We grew it to quite a substantial size. I think at our peak, we had 50 or 60 employees on our staff. So it was a sizable enterprise. But the probably the last four or five years, we began to sort of level out. We saw that things were, the market was changing. Some of our original product areas were becoming defunct. And we brought in another partner who changed our strategy somewhat. And, you know, here, this is where the sort of a bad investment started, where at some point it would have perhaps been better to just say, okay, you know, this is not working out. I'm going to exit or we're going to make this sort of, one big bet, like do something that will either make the company successful or break it, as opposed to managing it to stay in business for another few years. And we, we did this for probably four or five years. And at the end of it, I exited without any financial losses. At the same time, I had invested something like 12 or 13 years of my life in this business. Wow. Uh, and the you know, did not come away with, say, the big exit at the end that we had hoped for initially, where, you know, we would either, you know, somehow sell to somebody else or have a cash cow that we could just sort of manage remotely. That didn't happen. So in that respect, that's a pretty big chunk of your life to invest for modest return. At the same time, during those years, we had some pretty good earnings and income. So there, there was that that was okay. And there are other aspects of it. What we learned, the, the people that we helped over the years. I mean, I look at the employees that 
got married, bought houses, had kids, bought new cars, you know, and we enabled all that. So, I mean, there were certainly a lot of rewards along the way, but, you know, this and even a couple of other times, I think that we all have a tendency, if we're in a situation that is somewhat comfortable, we can keep investing our time in that when we really shouldn't. We should say, okay, you know, a year from now, this is not going to be any better. It is time to pull the plug and do something else. But especially if we are, say, working for a salary job or something that, you know, it's very difficult to just say, no, I'm going to give that up. I'm going to give up the benefits and do something different. I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to go look for a new job or I'm going to start a business or do something else. But that sort of comfortable inertia that you have can trap you for uh, years in a situation that really you know right now is not going to pay off long term. So, you know, I think that the biggest lesson that I've learned is that you, know, you have to be aware of that when you are sort of coasting in a situation that is comfortable enough, maybe it's very comfortable, but you know that it's not going to lead to your ultimate goal. And sometimes you've got to say, okay, time to pull the plug and do something else instead of just continuing to invest time in that. Mm. Great story. And uh, the point about time is so critical. I mean, we oftentimes think of money, but money can be recovered. Yeah, I've got one, one other little story part of that. Probably the low point, Andrew, was as in the later part of those years, I was in my office and got a certified letter from the bank asking me personally to show up at their office with about a million and a half dollars by the next day because they <laughs> did not want to be our lender. And so, you know, as low points in business go, getting this letter out of the blue was a real shocker. And even worse, my wife got one of the same letters at home. So she immediately assumed that we were going to lose our house. We we're going to be out on the street. You know, kids are going to be beggars or something. But unfortunately, we managed to take care of the bank. We got them paid off. Nobody, nobody lost their house. Nobody had to cough up any personal funds. But I think, you know, that was certainly a clue at that point that this was not a good situation to be in. And mm. I keep a copy of that letter framed on my office wall as a reminder that when I think I'm having a rough day, I can look at that and say, no, now that was a bad day. Today's not so bad. Listeners, what a great little tidbit out of this is take your worst moment and memorialize it and put it up on the wall. I've never thought of that. But the idea being that, you know, sometimes we need encouragement on really tough days. And that's a great way to look at it and say, I made it through that. Mm. Yeah, I still have a coffee cup, too, that I use with the bank's logo on it, just as a reminder that uh, <laughs> uh, I, I managed to win that particular contest. <laughs> that's great. Well, how would you describe the lessons that you learned from this? Well, as I was saying, I think it's important to not keep investing time or investing money. I think the same type of attitude could apply to money if you are putting money into a business to keep it going, where, you know, you have to realize at some point it's not going to work probably and either, you know, just say, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. Find a way to exit it and keep yourself as whole as you can or say, okay, what do I have to do to change this trajectory that we're currently on. And even if it's risky, maybe breaking it is better than just limping along for another few years. Great. Yep. And let me summarize what I take away from this. And one of the things that is interesting, as I go back to episode 92 with 
a woman that's a very impressive and smart investor, Inbok Song, a Korean woman that lives in the U.S. And I've actually known her through the years as an analyst servicing a fund manager. She said something really fascinating about her mistake in investing in this really pretty good company. And eventually things went wrong. And her statement was, a strong company can die slowly. And what it meant to me was that, be careful. You may be going down a slope and not even noticing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it makes me think about, you know, what, what you're talking about is that you can get into kind of a rut, you're comfortable with what's going on, and then all of a sudden you realize, whoa, I'm much different place than I thought I was going to be. Right. Well, so many companies have succeeded by taking risks on obsoleting themselves. You know, I think that you can point at companies like Intel or Microsoft or others where they had those decisions to make and they made them. And you can look at somebody like Kodak. Now, Kodak was in a very difficult situation because they were so profitable in their film business, in, you know, physical film and photography and that to replace those revenues with revenues from digital products and services would be really difficult. It's not a case of they just sort of missed this turn. They saw what the implication would be for total revenue and profitability and said, okay, this is not a future that we like the looks of. But at the same time, they took the approach of just milking the film business for as long as they could instead of just saying, okay, look, the film business is not going to be here in any significant way, you know, five or 10 years down the road. So, you know, let's just bite the bullet now and go all in on digital. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep film going from the manufacturing standpoint, keep, keep those profits rolling, but we won't worry about obsoleting ourselves. We will just do it. And, you know, I don't know that that would have worked in their case. Uh, certainly there are some companies that uh, could have adopted a new technology and grown rather than shrunk. I think Kodak was on a path to shrinking one way or the other, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, nevertheless, they did take that sort of easy path of just not doing anything too dramatic. And then, of course, ended up in dire financial straits. Right. And the other lesson, of course, is that, you know, time loss can never be retrieved and, you know, obviously we look back on our experiences and we've learned from them and we've grown from them. But of course, we don't really want to lose that time. You know, you didn't go into that thinking that it was going to happen in that way. And I really want to use this as a segue into the next question, which is based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And I want to try to take it to a point where a listener out there has invested a lot of time and energy, maybe three years, five years, 10 years, whatever that would be, into their idea, into their business. And it, it's, it's gone along the way yours went. And, you know, there's a point where they have to really, you know, decide what they're going to do. And I'm just curious, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Right. Well, you know, you make an interesting point there, Andrew. I think what I write about today and actually for the last dozen years or more is applying behavioral science to marketing and business. And one of the things that all humans are subject to is what is called the sunk cost fallacy. (laughs) So that we all know that if we paid money for something, we want to try and use that thing. 
rather than not even if it, there's a better solution that we would have to pay a small amount of money for, we'll keep trying to use the thing that we already paid for. And that's, that applies to time too. If we have sunk a lot of years into a business or even a few years into a business, that's a significant investment. And we don't want to think that we wasted that time. We don't want to see it go to waste. So we keep on pretty much doing the same thing. And so I think my piece of my one piece of advice would be to evaluate where you are periodically. Like we're approaching, as we're, at least we're recording this, we're approaching a new year. And, you know, that's a great time to sort of take stock of what you are investing your time in now and whether that really makes sense or whether you are continuing to invest that time because of all the time you've already sunk into that job, that project, that side gig or whatever it is. And if somebody had advised you and the people that you were working with, you know, at year, I don't know, whatever year, year five, year 10, year seven, and they asked you to sit down and let's sit down and evaluate where you are. Did you do that at the time or you did not do that? And if you did do that or if you had done that, what would you have seen? What would a person see that would help them overcome this sunk cost fallacy? Yeah, you know, a few years in, I think there probably there would have been no different actions in, in large part than the ones we took. I think as we got farther down that course, there could have been different strategies. And in fact, in some of those things, we realized that we had to do change our strategies and we brought in a partner who we hoped would shore up those areas. And instead, he took the business in a somewhat different direction, not a bad direction. It generated millions of dollars of additional sales. So, you know, it, it was just a sort of different approach. And I think if somebody had, like a third party had sat down and said, okay, what business are you guys in? You really need to decide. We would have probably had to choose and maybe taken proactive steps to solidify one direction or the other, as opposed to sort of muddling forward with both that were both profitable, both generating sales, but were kind of difficult to manage uh, side by side. Mm, okay. And I guess for the listeners out there, that may mean getting a trusted third party to come in and help you evaluate what you're doing and what you had planned on doing and, you know, help you to kind of look at it in a, in a somewhat of a direct, honest way. Sounds like it would be Yes, because for sure, you are going to be subject to all kinds of biases. I mean, there are <laughs> literally dozens and dozens of biases that affect human decision making. And having somebody come in who has a different set of programs and does not have all the investment in whatever it is that you're doing now that you do can look at it more impartially, whether you're deciding whether you should stick with your current job, whether you should keep investing in a business or, you know, keep putting your time into some other activity, they can bring, not necessarily, it won't necessarily be uh, the perfect perspective, but at least it'll be a different perspective. And once you can sort of argue about the differences, then you are taking yourself out of the sort of emotional bias-driven decision-making process and into a little bit more rational process. Got it. And I'll, I'll wrap up this section by um, telling a, a little story on my side. Uh, there was a, a guy that came to, to see me and sometimes people will you know, ask for advice about things and mistakenly they asked me for advice about relationships, not really realizing or thinking about the idea that I've never been married. So I'm not sure if I give great advice. I saw a great marriage, my mom and dad's, but I never had one. And uh, they asked no, me- no, you, At least you're not biased. Exactly. 
I'm not bitter. <laughs> and uh, I always ask them, you know, I said, look, I'm not really good at relationship stuff. So I really have honed it down to just one question. And I really, if you could just give a, a yes or no answer, it would be the best that I could probably do to help you. And they said, okay, well, what's that? And I say, well, obviously when you met this person, you didn't know them very well. And now after one year or three years or five years, you know them very well. So the question is, if this person, knowing what you know now, if this person walked up to you today, would you start a relationship with them knowing what you know about them now? And I always, you know, it gets a little squirmy, but I just say just a yes or no, you know, I'm not, we're not going to publicize this. And if they say no, I say, well, I think you've got your answer. And if they say yes, I say, well, <laughs> double down and get back involved and make it work. And that right. is, well, that, that's, a, that's a great question, Andrew. And it really shows that the sunk cost fallacy at work there, if they say no, because they're in the relationship, they're maybe trying to make it work or improve it. But when you look at it in those terms, it sort of shows, okay, well, you are biased by the amount of time that you've already put into this. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, I am going to keep promoting the ideas in my book, Friction. It came out a little bit earlier this year, and it's got some nice year-end recognition. Strategy and Business Magazine called it one of the top three management books of the year. And so I will be promoting those ideas. I'll be doing speeches probably around the world. I've booked a couple already and workshops focused on the idea of how you can improve both customer experience and employee experience by focusing on friction and making things easier. Well, you know, about maybe uh, a large number of my listeners are in Asia, since I'm in Asia, and I'm going to do a shout out to the listeners. Let's, let's figure out a way that we can get Roger over here across Asia talking about this, or if you're already booked, you know, to come here. I'll share anything on the show notes so that we can keep in touch and figure out how we can make sure that your ideas spread in Asia. Great. Well, that would be wonderful, Andrew. Great. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Roger, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? You know, I think just keep evaluating where you are and try and be as dispassionate as possible. You can never eliminate all your biases, but do your best. Fantastic. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.